Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. Exciting for me. Uh, I know you guys will miss him, but I'm excited to get the chance uh, to preach. I'm so grateful to get to, to preach after that kind of worship with you guys. Thank you so much. That's really what Colossians is all about. It's that, that Christ is our living hope, our hope of glory, actually. And when we begin to, to wrap our head around that, like we have for weeks and weeks now in chapter 1, it's pretty profound, and it's life-changing. It's life-altering. It changes you from the inside out. This truth is unbelievable, and I'm praying that God will continue to deepen your understanding of this because I just feel like it's going to transform each of us to a, a greater degree as God continues to, to build us up. So as we do this, uh, I, I want to get you all caught back up on board. So let me remind you, if you haven't been here, we've been working through a series called The Hope of Glory. Some of you guys will be excited. We're officially in chapter two now. Are you all good about that? Officially in chapter two. Oh, we were in chapter one for a good long while. It's actually going to speed way up from here. A couple weeks in, in chapter two and then at Colossians chapter three where this is all beginning to hit our life. Now we've got this, this huge, big, epic truth. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're going to spend a little bit more time there making sure that's really sunken in. And then we're going to transition into how do we work that into our family? How do we work that into our day-to-day life? So don't miss these. It's really uh, awesome. What we're realizing is we're using this term because Paul used it. Christ is our hope of glory, but it, it means even more than that. He's our hope for everything. Everything that we need is in him. And so we're unlearning some things the enemy has taught us and reminding ourselves of some incredible truths. So if you haven't been here, uh, just as an introduction, Paul is writing this letter. If you're not familiar with the Bible that much, uh, a lot of the New Testament is our letters. And this was a personal letter uh, written to uh, the church in Colossae. Paul is writing this to them. Colossae is in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And he's writing it from prison in Rome. And he's writing it because he's received word from his dear friend Epaphras that there's trouble. There's problems in the church of Colossae in the neighboring area of Phrygia. There were three churches uh, that were right around there, Hierapolis and Laodicea. All three of those churches were really close and kind of worked together because years earlier, Epaphras had gone to Paul while he was in Ephesus and learned the gospel, became a believer and was overwhelmed by it. So much so that he goes back to Colossae, plants that church. So Paul's never actually been there, but Epaphras had been there. But Paul was sort of a grandfather figure to this. He was the foremost authority on the gospel at this point. And so when there was trouble in the church, Epaphras wanted to go to uh, Grandpa Paul, who was very late in life uh, at this point in prison in Rome where he would later die. And uh, Epaphras goes and shares to him, listen, the gospel is being distorted. The gospel you shared with us is being convoluted. It's twisted. They're starting to add things to it. There's a danger here in the church and we need you to address it. And so Epaphras is hoping that this letter from Paul is going to resolve some of the tension between uh, the previous cultures that were there. There's this big word we learned called syncretism, and it was when it really means that you're trying to take a bunch of different religions and, and worldviews and smush them into one, and it doesn't really work. The gospel is exclusive. Christ alone is sufficient for our, our salvation, our sanctification, and later our glorification, and we've been sort of soaking in this. So the danger is, and I want to remind you, some of you guys have done this, and it's really cool. Uh, our messages are on SoundCloud. Sometimes we lag a little bit. I'm not... So great, uh, getting them up right on time. I'm working on that. Somebody feels like that could be your ministry. You'll be my new best friend. Uh, but you can, <laughs> but you can uh, go and listen to previous messages. And some of the background of this is actually really interesting. Uh, rather than try and recap it, I'll just point you back to that. Go to our website, hit sermons. You'll know what to do if you don't find a teenager. Uh, but the, <laughs> the Colossian church uh, it was made up from people that, uh, to speed this up, Judaism, paganism, sort of a, what I'm calling Roman imperialism, which I think is a little bit like American, uh, the way we think. Uh, they really believe that a great culture would solve everything, all of their problems. Uh, but these are people carry with them into their understanding of the gospel. And we sort of backed up and remembered that we all have this hope for glory. We really do. We desire 
these eternal joys that we're created for, way bigger than anything this world has to offer, and we don't really want to admit that, but we sort of in our heart know that it's true, that we need more than this world can give us, and this desperate search begins to lead us to, to make some crazy decisions, and we'll do anything, buy anything, go anywhere, trying to find something that fe- sort of feeds that, that need for satisfaction in our life, but what we've recognized is the only thing that can fill that is Christ. But when we're searching outside of him for this hope of something eternal, eternal joys, it causes us to do crazy things. And, And I think even as we become Christians, we have to still unlearn some of this habit because the gospel is maybe too simple for us. It's absurdly simple. And, and for some people, maybe too much so. And it's simply this, the gospel is that Christ alone has purchased for us salvation from our sin through his death and his resurrection. And he alone is able to redeem us from our sin and restore us into right relationship with God and then restore us back into uh, holiness the way that only he can. So he alone can justify us. That's salvation. I'm teaching these words. Uh, Most of you guys know them, but in case you don't. He alone can sanctify us. This is where we're really going to hang out today a little bit. And when we say sanctify, what we're saying is he alone can grow us into Christ-likeness. That sanctify means to holify, if you will, sanctify, I mean, coming from the word holy, to be set apart unto him, to live that, that out. So inwardly, everything is done at justification. Outwardly, we work in tandem with Christ, Christ empowering us, us working alongside with the energy that he puts in us. We begin to become Christ-like day by day. And as we do that, he receives glory. But that's, that's the gospel, okay? He's the only one that can... Heal us from our brokenness, and we look forward to heaven when he'll finish the job. Praise God. Now, I'm looking forward to that. And so the gospel is, is simple. It's Christ in you for salvation. It's Christ in you for sanctification. It's Christ in you for your eventual glorification. The problem is in Phrygia, in this little area, they were hesitant to believe that Christ alone was enough. And they thought it was Christ and something. So the Jews wanted to, to have Christ. But if you really want to go deeper, they wanted to add tradition. The pagans were, Christ is good. He can do a lot for us. But let's, let's still work some of this paganism kind of thing so we can get a little bit more out of our crops, a little bit more out of life. Maybe there's, there's more that can be on top of Christ. God is good in that he's given us Christ. But we can get even more if we can work both sides of the coin with these pagan gods as well. And the Roman imperialists, you know, as I was saying before, I think they were trying to sort of add to their hope in, in Jesus, this hope in the glory of Rome, and that if the, the Rome became even more glorious and, and uh, powerful across the globe, that it would mean more econ- a better economy, greater safety, convenience, fame for them, greater personal comfort. So if, if, if we got Jesus and a great government and a great nation that gives me everything that I need, we're going to be fine. But Jesus and that, y'all follow me? And so the gospel, we've been saying this, we're almost done with recap, okay? The gospel is not Christ and anything, okay? We, we're getting this in Colossians. Paul's trying to, to hammer this home to Christians, actually, so we need to hear this. The gospel is not Christ and anything. It's not even Christ and you. It's Christ in you. He's the one that works this out in us and makes us Christ-like and grows us for his glory. So as we transition out of chapter 1 into chapter 2, if you want to go and turn there, uh, Colossians chapter 1 expresses this desire for believers to become mature. And Steve's done a beautiful job explaining that the need for us to be mature. He went to a couple of Paul's other writings in, in Romans and in Corinthians in order to explain what does this maturity look like. And I think in Colossians chapter 2 right here, Paul is dealing with how does that happen? How, are we, how do we grow to be mature? How are Christians to mature? And in here, as we look in Colossae, I think this will help you understand these competing ideologies, these competing worldviews, competing philosophies, if you will, I think are competing for this. So we have the the Jewish, the pagan, the sort of pre-Gnostic group, which I haven't really talked about yet today, but they were this group that believed that the spiritual realm was, was more important and that there was secret knowledge to be had. That there were some secret rituals and things that the worship of angels and dealing with demons would push you further uh, into it. And so until you've done some of these secret things that only we can show you, uh, you are still a baby Christian. And we want to help you step into that. And then there was this other group that we'll deal with next week later in chapter 2 called the ascetics. I know I'm giving you all these big words, but uh, the ascetics were... 
those who believed in punishing their body harshly in order to train themselves to stop sinning. So they were trying to sort of literally impact themselves. They would whip. They would do all sorts of things in order to punish themselves externally, uh, punish their bodies so that they would be trained not to sin. And these people uh, had their hope, and it's Christ, and I also need to, to literally beat my body in order to train myself not to sin. All this stuff is creeping in on top of the gospel. And so understand that background information. Let's look at chapter 2, and I think you'll see this. Paul does want believers to be mature. He's going to explain how this all happens, and he takes care to deal with each of the competing ideas we just mentioned in the process. But watch how he keeps pointing back to Christ alone. So here we go. Verse 1, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, this is a warning, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And you have been filled in him who is head over all rule and authority. Man, that last verse has got so much weight to it. We'll get there eventually. But what this passage says is that Paul is pointing to Christ alone as the hope of glory. He's certainly our hope of maturity. If we want to mature in our our walk with Christ, if we want to grow into this maturity we've been studying about the last couple weeks, your hope for that is Christ. And it's not Christ and anything. It's Christ in you that's working here. And Paul's trying to hammer this home. And so maturity, I translate all of this as this, that maturity is the result of intimacy with Christ. So this is difficult for us as Christians, okay? Do not be deceived to think that Christ is only sufficient for your salvation, meaning God can save me from hell, but after that I'm on my own. Are you with me? This, this is something that I've, I've seen my whole life in, in the church where people thought there's more to this. Uh, I've got, I'm, I'm now a believer. I'm saved. I got baptized. Now what? Let's move past the gospel into the deep truth. And, and listen, here at this church, we're just never going to do that. If you're, it's not that we're going to get into deep truths. We just believe the gospel is the deepest truth. That's the most profound truth that we can get into. We're not going to shy away from... Uh, things that are deep, things that are difficult and challenging. We're going to get into some today. But what I want you to know is that there's nothing deeper, nothing more impactful, nothing better we can give you than the unadulterated, true gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope that we have. And that is that Christ has done the work to rescue us and save us. And that he doesn't stop there. He continues on to make us into uh, small versions of himself. Little Christ-like people who live for his glory. And then one day we'll see him face to face. It's nuts. It's awesome. It's better than you thought. It's not, it's not you, God saves you and then you, you're qualified to try hard and then you get to heaven. If you did enough, God's going to be like, you know what? I got you started and you finished the job. It's not that. It's, it's Christ in you. He's the one who saved you and he is powerful enough to continue that on to the very end, working in and through you, transforming you from the inside out. That's the whole deal. And so uh, what we're getting in this is that maturity is the result of Christ in you. It's this intimacy with Christ that we get to enjoy. So He's not only sufficient for your salvation, he's sufficient for your maturity, your sanctification, and he's sufficient for your eventual glorification, which we're not getting into today. Um, but Paul wants them, if you read this passage, I want you to have full assurance, not partial assurance, right? Full assurance in this, in this truth, the true knowledge of Christ. And so I, I want you to, I'm going to use a word that might sound like I'm getting unspiritual, true knowledge of Christ. 
Paul is saying, if you want to grow in maturity, he said, I want you to, to not fall into some of these things that knowledge is going to be a part of this. And not just knowledge, but true knowledge, not human knowledge. The truth here wants you to get this. And he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he wants you to have knowledge and he points you to the source, which is Jesus. He wants you to have wisdom. He points you to the source of wisdom. If you need wisdom and knowledge and all wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, where would you go to shop for wisdom and knowledge? Christ. That is where we go. That's why we're Christians. We are seeking after him. So if you've been a Christian all your life, this is going to be good news. And you've been thinking, okay, I've got Jesus. Now I need to find that extra knowledge somewhere else. I've got to figure that out. I've got to find that extra wisdom. I need to figure out where that secret place is. I've got to find the right teacher. I've got to find the right paperback. Let me just set you free of that. You already have it. It's called Christ in you, and you need to pursue him. If you want maturity in Christ, you pursue Christ, and he will plant all those things in you himself. He can do it. He's strong enough. He's able. But Paul, you know, that's a great truth, but this is something that there are plausible arguments against this that sound good to human ears, and Paul is warning the church at Colossae not to fall into that. Do you feel that when I read the passage? Paul is realizing there's a danger here. And so what I want to do is deal with a couple of these dangers that he mentioned so that you're not deluded is the word that he used. So you don't become a delusional Christian, all right? It's possible to have a really good time uh, believing delusional things. You could be tricked. You could be fooled into false information, believing something that's not true. And we don't want to do that. Even if you've had a great, and I say this with as, as much uh, care and sensitivity as I can, we can experience all kinds of things, even very deeply emotional and the impactful things in our life that are very spiritual moments that were not based on the truth. And I don't want to take away that from you, that same God that loves you, desires you, and pursues you. But it's even richer when that emotion corresponds to truth. And when you begin to realize, oh, this is true. And, I, and as God continues to grow me, I continue to find out places that I was wrong and that he continues to correct me. And each time he does that, and I realize that there's truth here, that truth leads me into even more intimacy and more uh, closeness with him where I can rejoice in him. So I just encourage you with that. So, all right, he doesn't, he doesn't want you to become delusional. There's dangers here. The first one he mentions, let's work through these, is the danger of philosophy. And so uh, philosophy, really, if you break it down, is the love of wisdom. And we use this word a little differently now. But I, I want to say this, philosophy in itself is not evil. It's actually, it's kind of funny. I was reading this, and there's some tongue twisters reading some people. It's, an, it's a self-refuting claim that philosophy is evil. Any attempt you make to formulate arguments against philosophy, you will be reasoning philosophically about philosophy. Yet, if you're reasoning philosophically about philosophy, you're engaging in the very thing Paul allegedly told us not to do, philosophy. So, uh, wow, I did it. Uh, <laughs> A Christian philosopher, Dr. William Lane Craig, said this. The man who claims to have no need for philosophy is the one most apt to be fooled by it. So philosophy in itself is not evil. What we do know is this, that any philosophy that is not based on Jesus is dangerous. Any philosophy that's not based on Jesus is dangerous. There's so many different competing worldviews out there that have the appearance of truth that seem like plausible arguments, but in reality, they're a lie and they are dangerous. And as Christians, you need to be alert to these things so that we don't fall in. Remember, this is a letter to Christians. He's saying we are in danger of falling into believing that it's Christ and something, that it's Christ and these other additions to it. And philosophy is one of those things. So I set out to, to sort of get this, and I'm going to go through a few dangerous philosophies that we see today, but I want to say this before we do, that philosophy really is, uh, or without God's revelation in the Bible, excuse me, that man in his natural fallen state cannot obtain genuine wisdom and knowledge, certainly not from God. We are affected by sin. Wisdom is a gift from God, and so if we love wisdom, we understand that as a gift from him. So in order to be able to handle that, we've got to go to the ultimate source of wisdom, which is God himself. And through faith, we rely on him, not ourselves. Just like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path or make your path straight. It's really cool. So we don't rely on just our own ability to look at our belly button and try to figure out the world. Like that's not going to work. Okay. You're going to need to look at the word of God, which is why we love the word of God, because we believe that in black and white, we get to see what God would wanted us to see about his character and his nature. And so studying scripture is not the pursuit of empty human knowledge. You can get that at Harvard, but their genuine pursuit of 
of the word of God is an actual pursuit of the person of the Godhead. It is pursuing Trinity. It's pursuing God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you open up the word of God, it is not a scholastic process that doesn't impact your heart. Some people are worried that you can do that. Listen, if Christ is in you, good luck achieving that. It, the, the, the word of God is a double-edged sword. It will come at you. Listen, you're not going to succeed. If you don't want it to impact your heart and you're a believer with Christ in you and you're just going to study it like a school student, listen, it's going to eventually grab your heart and the Holy Spirit's going to do what he does. He's your teacher. You don't have to fear uh, looking at it. Just like He's going to meet you wherever you are and bring you where. But anyway, we pursue the mind of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. So let's look at a few of these. I don't want to get caught up here because this is really not the main event here, but I'm going to work quickly because I think this is the danger that we have to be careful about. One of these philosophies is secular humanism, okay? And uh, secular humanism is really an attempt to take God out of civilized society and live in a very a godless fashion, basically just on the principles of the world. It's very pragmatic. What works is driven a lot by science. Humanists uh, are really, let's take God out of it, elevate the role of humans. So that's really where it comes from, this whole idea of humanists. Their approach has, has been since a long time ago, some of this I'm going to read you may shock you, has been to train up children. Wow, almost like what God told us to be doing. Uh, and, and they said, we want to train up children. So I'll read this. Uh, humanist Charles F. Potter writes, and this was in Humanism, A New Religion. And I'll let you guess the time when he wrote this. I'll give you the date in a second. See if it doesn't sound like it's written in 2018. It says, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every American school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic Sunday school's meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? That's Charles Potter and Humanism, A New Religion. And I guess the date? 1930, when this was written. And John J. Dunphy wrote uh, The Humanist in 1983, his essay. And he, he writes... The battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to carry humanist values into wherever they teach. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity together with its adjacent evils and misery and the new faith of humanism. That was 1983. I'd say they're being fairly successful. Now, listen, I'm so pleased and proud to say this, that Gilmer County is flooded with awesome godly teachers that are not proselytizers of humanism. And praise God, we have communities like that. And a lot of our leaders are even like that. And uh, we are so blessed. Many of you educators sitting here today and are a light into the, the school system. Praise God for that. Um, man, y'all have opened doors for us to get in and share the gospel with FCA in so many different ways. And coaching throughout the years, you know, Sam, uh, the Snyders. But, uh, I mean, it's just awesome. We've had Walt back there. I mean, it's amazing what God has, has opened doors in public school system. This is not a, uh, an indictment on public school. Uh, I, I, I love the opportunities we get to have and the, the people involved in Gilmer. But the bottom line is that this is the heartbeat of the worldview of secular humanism. You see this? Is to train up people that we don't need God to function in society. And we're seeing some of the effects of that. So secular humanism is something that's uh, it's out there. It's a competing philosophy. Naturalism is another one. I'm not going to say much here because it's very similar. It's basically just we believe in what's natural. Anything that's supernatural, we just, you know, on philosophical grounds, reject it. So we can study science, and we believe that there has to be a scientific explanation for the introduction of matter in the universe, the creation of the universe. And if we come to this conclusion that science can't answer the question and someone poses a supernatural explanation, God must have created this then we have to reject that truth on philosophical grounds because there is no such thing as supernatural and we must continue trying to find a naturalistic explanation of what's true. Y'all follow that? Maybe that's a lot. Um, <laughs> put it in slow motion. On the, I, I struggle to understand myself sometimes. <laughs> Naturalism is just saying we believe there's only a natural explanation. God, if he even comes up, we just reject it. Uh, the philosophy, there's a postmodern philosophy that's out there too that we need to be aware of. And postmodernism is, is a really interesting thing. It's very hard to define. 
there isn't really a universal uh, way to, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of agreement in postmodernism as to what it actually is because uh, by definition, they don't believe there's such thing as objective truth. So if you make a truth claim about what postmodernism is, you've, you've broken the laws of postmodernism. Well, you can't even talk, you can't even say laws of postmodernism because they don't believe they're in. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the, they, they deny that there is truth, and so the whole basic, uh, the background of this is saying that it's not what's written down that is truth. What's truth is as after you read the words, how you read them and it lands in your heart, that becomes truth. What the author's intent was is far less important, if not irrelevant. Uh, the author's intent doesn't matter. What matters is your interpretation of what the author wrote. Does that make sense? So depending on your culture, your point of view, or wherever you're coming from, what mood you in, what you have for lunch may determine how you interpret what it was written. And you can walk away saying, this is true. And then if somebody comes up to you and says, that's not true, you say, well, how do you know? It doesn't matter what your point of view is. It's true for me. It may not be true for you, but it's true for me. This is, you all follow this? You'll see young people talking like this a lot. This is the worldview that they're coming from. They've been trained to think this way, but there's no objective truth. The, if, you were, if you were Satan and you were trying to destroy uh, this incredible word of God that we have to lean on that keeps us grounded, what would you do? You would introduce a philosophy that says there's no objective truth. Only your interpretation matters. In fact, you can all disagree and everything will be okay. Right? It's insidious. But that's exactly what the enemy has done. He's given us this postmodern philosophy, and it is so dangerous to our understanding of the gospel. Because I've even heard pastors come up and say, well, we can't really define the gospel. Each fellowship has to define the gospel themselves. Listen, that is not up for us to figure out. That is, God has revealed that. We're not going to discuss what the gospel is without a Bible in our hand saying God revealed to us the gospel. It doesn't mean that they're not confusing things. It doesn't mean that there's not difficult things to, to, to land on and come to agreement on. But it's not about what you think or what I think. It's about what the word of God says and the intent of the scripture, not how we interpret it. Are you with me? So we believe there's truth for us to discover. We don't decide about it. So in the end, I'll simply say this. John Blanchard, I love this quote. He said, philosophy is the search for truth. In Jesus, the search ends. I love it. This is what, this is what scripture says. That every truth that we need about wisdom and knowledge is hidden in him. And so whatever your pursuit has been to try and find uh, a deeper reality, listen, you're going to find that in Christ. You can, uh, hey, don't, don't be scared of reading all that stuff. There's awesome answers that scripture has for us. And they're found in Christ as revealed through the word of God. And so philosophy can be a good thing and also be a dangerous thing. Any philosophy not based on Christ uh, is dangerous. So let's move on to the next one. We're going to speed up a little bit. The dangers of human tradition, okay? Now, human tradition is a, a, a good thing in some ways. In the same way philosophy, there are good traditions and bad ones. And I'll say the very same definition. Human traditions that, that somehow diminish the gospel, distort the gospel, point away from the gospel are not good traditions. Uh, human traditions that elevate the gospel, that point to the sufficiency of Christ are good traditions. And those are things that we need to have. Uh, Paul actually talks about them. And uh, we can see that in Second Thessalonians 3.6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul is saying there are some good things that we can, we can have from tradition. I'm not throwing it all there. But what I'm trying to say is that the good traditions point us to the sufficiency of Christ. And honestly, I see this as the danger, that evil traditions that creep into the church that we ourselves need to be dangerous of, this syncretism thing that kind of happens, is that evil human traditions in the church typically usually set up rules and regulations that are presented as measuring sticks to gain God's special blessing. Like if you can, if you can jump over this stick, you can get a special blessing from God, and, and ultimately, if you reduce it down, it's a human version of the law that appears to be achievable. And, and here's the deal. If you look at God's word and you look at it in reality, all it's going to do is, is it's going to overwhelm you and you're going to realize that you, are, you have fallen short of the glory of God and you are in need of a savior. But if we invent our own little human traditions and say, don't smoke, don't, don't drink, don't go out with girls who do, and that's the only thing that matters and those are the only things we obsess about, and if you can check those boxes, you're good to go. We can, are you with me? We don't actually deal with covetousness in our heart. We don't deal with the root. We don't deal with, you know, we, at our men's meeting, we were challenging one another to, to guard our eyes and our hearts from the dangers of pornography. We get into all these things. No, nothing's off limits as we continue to 
to try and sharpen one another and be sharpened by the word of God. We don't just set up a, a little bar, don't leave all this and don't talk about it. But we also don't say, hey, if you can clear this bar, you're right with God. The problem with that is that if you can clear that man-made bar, you're going to walk away feeling really proud of yourself, thinking that you don't need Jesus. And you're going to look down at everybody who can't jump as high as you, right? And then all of a sudden, the gospel's lost. But if we look at God's law and we see that, oh my gosh, we have fallen by it. This is where it goes back to the gospel. You are fallen. You can't jump over. There's not, there's no bar but, but Christ, perfection, and we have fallen. So our only hope, hope, right, is Christ. We need to go to him, the one who died for us, who rescued us, who saved us. And so he's the guy who can save us from the judgment, the penalty for that. And he's also the one that can save us from the presence of that sin in our life as he grows us in maturity. This is why we go back to him. So human traditions can be dangerous. Uh, the Pharisees in, in Mark chapter 7, this is how the Pharisees did it. The Pharisees and scribes are talking to Jesus and they said to Jesus, Why do you, your disciples, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did, or well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, the peop This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines... The commandments of men. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is Jesus talking to religious leaders. He said to them, you find a way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, this is a poignant today. Votros can sign on to this. This is cool. It says, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, this is the human version of the law, the stick that's achievable. If a man tells his father and or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is, uh, we're here, means given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let me explain. Basically, if you were supposed to take care of your parents, you could say, well, I'm just going to give what I should have given them to the church, right? So now my offering to the church is that box is checked, and I've taken care of my parents all in one fell swoop, and I get to keep a whole bunch more than I would have had. You see it? So he's saying, uh, the Pharisees are like, wow, I've, I've checked both boxes here on the law, but Jesus is saying, you've abandoned the heart of it, which I said, honor your father and your mother, and instead... You're deceiving, you're working around, and you're rejecting what I wanted for you in order to keep your human traditions. You know, with me, that's a tradition that points away uh, from God. We saw this back in the, the need for the rest, Reformation with the Catholic system of, of indulgences that kind of crept in and the, the relics where you could go and the, the Pope was seen to have a, a big, basically, trunk of merit that was left over from really, 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 really excellently good people and their moral goodness, their merit that was left over. And so you could buy that or you could go see somebody's saint, somebody's tooth and we could knock off a few thousand years of purgatory. I mean, these are traditions that aren't grounded in scripture, but they took over because man was wanting to do that. So all that to say, there's philosophy is dangerous if it's not grounded in Christ. Human traditions are dangerous if they don't point us back to the sufficiency of the gospel. And finally, it gets into the elements of this world. Now, first, I looked at this and, and uh, I thought basic principles of the world, and certainly that does apply. But there's an interesting nuance here that a lot of the, the uh, experts say about this, and that the elemental spirits, this word elemental, uh, really referred not just to the elements, uh, sort of earthness, uh, where uh, oxygen, hydrogen, you know, all these kind of elements. It's referring to this whole uh, idea of astrological signs and different things. And, and I don't know if you're familiar, but back during this part in Greek culture, uh, we can go and see that uh, astrology was something they took very, very seriously. Uh, huge leaders like Vespian and Alexander the Great, even Augustus, uh, Tiberius, Roman leaders, these were educated people, believed that if you were born under an unlucky star, you were just going to be unlucky. If you were born under a really good star, you, everything you touched was going to turn to gold. Uh, but you were fated by the stars. Just however you were there landed. There's some people that still kind of believe like this, where the stars hold their fate. And so if you were born under a really terrible star, and maybe you felt like it was because everything's falling apart in your life, and you think the stars are, are not shining on me the way they need to, there was this desire that people had during the season to get out from under the fate of the stars, right? 
Is there anything I can do to set myself free from the control and the slavery to the fate of the stars? And this was actually present. And later on, you see the Gnostics kind of trying to do this. And they're like, we have this ritual, and you can come and say this, and you can worship this angel, and you can do this and say this. And they were meshing this in with Christianity. Jesus can save you, but he can't get you out from under the fate of the stars. So what we need you to do is, is come, and we're the only ones who know how to do this. This is a secret knowledge. We've got a secret thing. Uh, buy our paperback. Come to our conference. We'll tell you all about it. Red flags, right? Anytime, anytime you're listening to somebody, they're like, I'm the only one that knows this. God has revealed this to me. It's a secret. And I'll, I'll tell you. And the next word is, I'll sell it to you. Uh, just be careful there. Listen, God's word is for all men. And his Holy Spirit is your teacher. And he will share it with you. And honestly, if anybody says, I'm the only one who knows this, every red flag, like fireworks, comes off of me. And I'll be like, no. As, as pastors, teachers, everything about our preparation is trying to make sure we are not doing anything new. We want to just repeat the truth of the gospel in a way that's relevant to our fellowship. That's all we're trying to do. Nobody's trying to come up with something new. You're never going to be like, I'm the only one who knows this because I guarantee you I'm not. And if I am the only one, I'm wrong probably. So uh, let's be careful. If I ever say that, just interrupt me. Uh, but, <laughs> but some of these people are like, we can, we can rescue you from the fates if you'll do these kind of things. And that was, that was the deal. I think sometimes, as I said, we see this happen in Christianity today where we think maybe there's Christ is good, but there's this extra knowledge, there's this secret thing, there's this ritual, there's this conference, there's this uh, program, there's this book, uh, there's this video, there's this one preacher, all these, and we want to hold these things up and say, this is the solution, it's Christ and all those things. Listen, praise God for how he works through the body of Christ to teach us, and I hope you're getting out there and studying, that's part of this, is to be, we're going to get into that in a second, but man, you need to know this, that the, the, the truth, all Wisdom and knowledge that you need are found in Christ. You don't have to get cute with it. Keep pursuing him, and he's going to overwhelm you with the details. He's going to overwhelm you with the truth and apply it to your heart. So we, we've seen the dangers of these things. And so let's, let's deal with this now. <laughs> it's a lot, right? Now, how do we actually mature? Let's get into the part where we can. How do we apply this in our life? We want to be careful. And so I'm going to move quickly here because I really think this is kind of self-explanatory. But I want to get this. In this passage, he says, be rooted in Christ. Be rooted in Christ. And I'd say rooted in the truth of Christ. So there's this deal where I want to say, if you're rooted in Christ, it means that God is the gardener and he has planted you. Okay? You don't get to save yourself. That's not how it works. It's Christ who saved you. Remember, it's not Christ and you. It's Christ in you. He's done this for you. So he has planted you. And he is doing that in such a way to grow you into who he wants you to be. And that's awesome. But you need to allow for your roots just to go deep into him and not be looking across. I need to get a root over there. You need to get them deeper and deeper into Christ. I'm going to read you this. It comes from Jeremiah. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Okay, it's all in Christ, not in everything else. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Listen, this is the deal. This is what we were celebrating a minute ago. When you are rooted in Christ, your circumstances are not the most important thing to what you're standing in. It, the roots are beneath the surface. They're, they're deeper than your circumstances, right? Because of what we believe in Christ, because of what he's made true, what he's caused us to put our faith in, the strength that we have through Christ in us, we are rooted and sealed in Christ. And because we are in him, our roots go deeper than circumstances. So when we face tremendous blessing, you know, one of us gets uh, tremendously blessed, whether that be financially or some other way, that doesn't knock us off our spot. When we, when we have to deal with enormous and incredible suffering in our life, that suffering doesn't knock us off our spot. We are planted by the living water, which is Jesus Christ, and he is nourishing and filling and growing us up through that. We are rooted in him. We are not rooted on the surface. So when drought comes, when, when all sorts of stuff hits in your life, good or bad, distractions or devastation, it never overwhelms us and knocks us off our spot because we are rooted in Christ. Well, we're like, right? That's it. That's the deal. And I pray that that's how we get to live. And I think when people see us rooted in Christ, not rooted in religion, rooted in Christ, not rooted in a cool church, rooted in Christ, not rooted in our new building, 
rooted in Christ, not rooted in some fancy truth or the emotionalism or, or anything else like that happens, but it goes deeper and then fuels. Listen, hey, walking with Christ is emotional. If you're here on me, like you, said, you have to deal with that. I get emotional sometimes. It's, it impacts my heart in a huge way. But I'm telling you, the roots go deeper than my capacity to feel anything. It doesn't matter if I feel it today or feel it tomorrow. It's true. My roots are in the truth. So even if I can't whip up enough emotion today, I can stand back and say, God, my body ain't going there. But I know it's true. Isn't that awesome? And we're rooted. And when we face, we have to forgive. And that's why we say this. We're doing counseling, right? Chrissy, you know, it's like it's time to forgive. And we realize it's a process. We make the decision to be rooted in forgiveness. But it takes a minute for our emotions to catch up with that. And that's okay. We're rooted in what's true. And the truth begins to transform us. Y'all with this? So we got to be rooted in Christ. So I'll say this. Christ is sufficient for your salvation. He can plant your roots in him. And if you are a believer, you know what I'm talking about. His, the roots go deep, right, into him. Let them continue to go deeper. Second thing he says, be built up in Christ. Be built up in Christ. I love this. He says, There's a foundation that's been laid, and I want to build it up layer, one layer at a time. This, to me, is a picture of the sanctification. So Christ is sufficient to root us. He's also sufficient to grow us. He's sufficient for our sanctification. Paul uh, writes this to the, another church, another letter to Corinth, and he says, he says, you are God's field, God's building. He gives you trees and buildings for this whole rooted foundation, you know, grow up, build up. He's got both these things working, it seems like, all the time. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, which is the gospel. Look, Jesus, 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 that's what he's trying to say. And someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed. For the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Listen, if you try and build your life on the foundation of Christ, but then as you try and build up the building on the foundation, go and try and find other materials, like, and it may look really good. You're like, wow, this is gold. This would be great. I think I'm gonna build my life around this. I'm gonna use this material. Uh, you know what? This is nice. This is a great wood. I'm gonna use this material uh, to build my life. And I'm thankful that I'm saved. Awesome. Now I'm gonna build the life I want. I'm gonna build my life out with these other things. This is silver. This is really beautiful. Listen, there's a lot of good things out there. Gold and silver are one of them. God even used them in the temple. They're beautiful things. But if you build anything other than Christ on Christ's foundation, if you, if you go out and try to build your life around anything temporal, listen, it's going to be shown for what it is in the end. And so I'll tell you this. Choose your materials wisely. <laughs> choose your materials wisely. Seek after the Lord. Listen, this is, this is cool because how do we do this? It's God building us up. But it's also we're active. So what does this work? Listen, we work under the power and direction of Christ in us. He empowers us and leads us. And, and this is the best way I know to explain it. Uh, Psalm 127.1 says, listen to how both things are happening. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It sounds like I'm saying two things, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who actually build the house labor in vain. Yeah, right. So as you build your life... Right? As God builds your life, as you build it, don't labor in vain. As God builds your life, as you build it, don't build it in vain. Right, Y'all follow this, right? This is what's happening. Christ in you is working in you. So it's not as though you just lay on the couch, as we've talked about before, and just let it hit you. It's not. It's not just let go, let God. That applies to some things, but sanctification is not a let go thing. It is a work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You get to participate. All right? You've got to get engaged. And as we say this, if you want, how do you engage? If you want maturity, pursue Christ. We're getting into that. Third thing, we're done. Be established in Christ, not anything else. Christ is sufficient to sustain you until the end. Be established in Christ. What Paul is saying here, the definition of established is that it's sure, it's fixed, it's standing on firm feet, it's steadfast, maintaining its firmness and its solidity. And Paul explains to believers that they are established through the gospel. This is Romans 16, 25. It says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. 
So we've, we've built a foundation. We're building on top of that. And as it's established, you're going to find out that it's established through the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So if you're coming here and you're like, well, you keep preaching about Jesus all the time. I'm never going to stop because that's the end game. Okay. Like that's not ever going to happen because that's the whole deal. We're being built up in him, built. Uh, he is at work constantly through us. And we are established. We're built up and finally established through the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for ages long past. And when he wrote that in Colossians, he ended it with the hope, Christ in you, the hope of glory is how he finished that sentence. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory. Second Corinthians 1, 21 says, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. He's the one who does the establishing. So where do we go from here as we kind of close with this? How do we apply this to our life? I understand there's a lot and a lot mentally to kind of deal with, but that's what Paul's dealing with. He's saying there are plausible arguments that are danger to you. And so uh, we need to face some of these things and deal with the realities of some of these competing ideas. But as you do this, I, I want to stop with the last little bit of this passage where it says that all, this is how we do this, all right? And this is why he points back to Christ constantly. Because he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And I want you to get this. This is really cool. All the fullness of the deity of God is in Christ. And he says, and Christ is in you. Isn't that unbelievable? And that goes back to, I'm going to bring our thing out one more time, just so we see it as we kind of wrap up. If you weren't here, I'm sorry. We don't have time to get into it. But in reality, we're getting this whole idea that somewhere in here, if we dig deep enough, we're going to find you. Uh, but you are, Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, and you are all in God. And we kind of use some Tupperware to illustrate that. But this is who you are. This is what's happening in you. And I love this. I, I was reading this, celebrating this, and a pastor I admire, his name is Charles Spurgeon, goes way back. But he writes this, and this is, is a while back, so big words, but you can do it, all right? He says, all, all the attributes of Christ as God and man are at our disposal. The fathomless love of the Savior's heart is every drop of it ours. Every sinew in the arm of might, every jewel in the crown of majesty, the immensity of divine knowledge and the sternness of divine justice, all are ours and shall be employed for us. The whole of Christ in his adorable character as the Son of God is by himself made over to us most Richly to enjoy. We have all that. His wisdom is our direction. His knowledge, our instruction. His power, our protection. His justice, our surety. His love, our comfort. His mercy, our solace. And his immutability, unchangingness, our trust. He makes no reserve, holds nothing back, but opens the recesses of the mount of God and bids us Dig in its minds for the hidden treasures. Isn't that beautiful? All, all, all are yours, said he. But ye satisfied with favor and full of the goodness of the Lord. Oh, how sweet thus to behold Jesus and to call upon him with a certain confidence that in seeking the interposition of his love or power, we are but asking for what that which he has already faithfully promised. It's outrageous. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was grasping at words to try and explain it. But you guys, we have Christ in us and all the fullness, all the deity, all the justice and power and love and mercy. And oh, it's all right there. And we pray and ask for it. We're asking for what has already been promised to us in Christ. And so when I say this, when, when we say God wants us to be mature believers and that there are other dangers in there, when I say seek after Christ and pursue him, I mean every word of that. It's all in him. Everything that you need is in Christ. All of that because the fullness of God is in him. It's Christ in you, our hope of glory. It's Christ in you, our hope of maturity. So if you want to mature as a Christian, pursue Jesus, pursue him, seek him, trust him, build your life on him alone, choose your materials wisely and let no other hope, whether it be made of gold or silver or anything else, compete for materials in your life. And as Christ builds you, build yourself up in him and maturity will be the result 
of that pursuit of Christ, that intimacy with Christ. Spurgeon ends up and he says this, cleave to Christ, beloved. Go no further than he leads you and turn not away from him either to the right hand or to the left. In him are contained all the riches of grace, all the treasures of knowledge. If you would become truly wise, seek to know more of the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. If you want to be mature, pursue Jesus, yield to him, be rooted in him, be built up in him, be established in him, and may God receive the glory as he builds his church. That's the deal. Guys, if you'll come, we're going to respond to God as we close. If you would, stand to your feet and just pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness. There is nothing else that we need. You are holy. You are just. You are in us. You have filled us. You are working even now in our spirits. God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you that's been clinging to another philosophy or human tradition or some other thing, that they would see that what they really need is you. If their hope is in anything but you, whether that be their works or something else or an experience even, that they would realize it's you and they would come and kneel before you and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I repent. I turn away from those. I recognize you are the son of the one true God who's died for me and paid the penalty for my sin. And God, I pray that you would come and make me your child, that you plant me where you want me to be planted and that my roots would grow into you and that you would build me into the person you desire for me for your glory and your name's sake. I just pray if that's you today, man, listen, go to Christ. Give your heart to him. Become a believer. Come follow Jesus. There's nothing but joy here. There's nothing but peace here. It might look hard, but there's nothing but, but, but joy in Christ. All the treasures, everything you're looking for is in him. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You, listen, you found it. If you're wondering, one day I'm going to find what I need. You found it. You're here. God put you here. If you don't know him, you, you landed on it. You're here today. It, there's nowhere else you can go. It's all in him. It's in Christ. I don't care what paperback gets written. I don't care what song you're in this week. I don't care what anybody says on Facebook. This is the end game. It is Christ. It is the gospel at work in you. It's what your family needs. It's what you need. It's everything. It's where you're going to find joy and hope and peace, fulfillment, meaning. He's going to establish you and you're going to look back at the end of your life if you allow him to build you up as you build yourself up. And you do that, listen, there's going to be no regrets. You're going to praise God and one day you get to look forward to seeing him face to face and him saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You didn't use that stupid material over there. You didn't get distracted by that human philosophy over there. You locked in on me. You kept coming. You kept coming at me. Yeah, I know you blew it, but you kept coming. You stayed rooted. I forgave you of that. I healed you of that. You were free and now you're home and you can continue living for eternity eons upon eons upon eons with me my child who's grown up you're established in me come home and see you found it quit looking quit, quit looking you found it let's just sing we're going to celebrate just the incredible goodness that we have in God y'all sing with us Carrie we want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship we believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.